every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning and a warm welcome to Money Talk. This is Peter Lewis with your daily update on the business and finance news from across Asia. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. And thank you for making us one of the most listened to financial podcasts in Hong Kong. In today's business and finance headlines, the Fed believes more interest rate increases are needed to combat high inflation in the US economy, but at a slower pace. Fed officials at their June meeting decided to hold off on raising interest rates, opting for a pause to assess the impact of 10 previous hikes. But almost all officials who participated at that meeting said additional increases in the Fed's benchmark interest rate would be appropriate. The Eurozone economy ground to a halt at the end of the second quarter, ending a robust sequence of services-led growth seen since the beginning of the year. While services business activity growth continued, it slowed to a five-month low in June. Gains in output in the services economy were counteracted by a sharp and accelerated decrease in factory production volumes during June. China's services sector activity expanded more slowly than expected in June, a survey of smaller private firms showed on Wednesday. The Kaishin China General Services PMI fell to 53.9 in June from 57.1 in May, well below the median forecast of 56.2 among economists. It was the sixth straight month of expansion in services activity, but the softest pace since January as demand moderated. And Hong Kong's private sector remained in expansion in June, but grew at the weakest pace in six months, according to the latest PMI data from S&P Global. Its Hong Kong PMI declined to 50.3 in June from 50.6 in May and below forecasts amid a softer rise in new orders due to weakened demand. On today's programme, I'm joined by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Michelle Lam, Greater China Economist at Societe Generale Corporate and Investment Banking. We're also going to take a look at how Hong Kong's mandatory provident funds have performed in the first half of the year with Francis Chung, Executive Chairman of MPF Ratings. And if you want to see my daily newsletter, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. On Wall Street, US stocks fell Wednesday as markets reopened after the 4th of July holiday and traders digested the latest Federal Reserve meeting minutes for insights into the Fed's thinking on monetary policy. The S&P 500 fell 0.2% to 4,447. The Dow lost 130 points, or 0.4%, to close at 34,289. Both the Dow and the S&P 500 snapped three-day winning streaks. The Nasdaq Composite slipped 0.2% to end at 13,792. Treasury yields rose Wednesday as investors absorbed the release of the Federal Reserve's latest meeting minutes. The benchmark 10-year Treasury yield rose 7 basis points to 3.93%. Stocks in Asia-Pacific fell across the board on Wednesday as the latest PMI surveys showed activity in the services sector in China and Japan growing at a slower pace last month. Australia's ASX 200 sank 0.4%. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 dropped 0.3%. South Korea's Cosby, meanwhile, lost 0.6%. India bucked the downward trend elsewhere in the region, with the Nifty 50 rising just under 0.1% to hit a record high for the fifth consecutive session. Greater China markets were lower. 
In Hong Kong, the Hang Seng Index tumbled 305 points, or 1.6%, to 19,110. And that trend looks set to continue at the open this morning. Futures markets are pointing to a loss of 100 points. That's half a percent. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite edged 0.7% lower to 3,223. There was sharp weakness in the yuan, with rising export tensions adding to the weak PMI data. In Shanghai, the Chinese currency closed 0.4% lower at 7.2465 renminbi. Offshore yuan is at 7.2625. The yuan has slid 5% against the US dollar so far this year, and is heading towards a 15-year low. And you can get more details on the latest market movements, which you'll find in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. It's time to welcome our Thursday morning guests, and I'm joined this morning, as every Thursday morning, Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Morning to you, Andrew. Good morning. And also joining us is Michelle Lam, who is Greater China Economist at Societe Generale Corporate and Investment Banking. Good morning, Michelle. Good morning, Peter. China's services sector activity expanded more slowly than expected in June. A survey of smaller private firms showed on Wednesday the Kaishin China General Services PMI fell to 53.9 in June from 57.1 in May, which is well below the median forecast of 56.2 among economists. It was the sixth straight month of expansion in services activity, but the softest pace since January as demand moderated. New orders eased to a six-month low, and new export business grew solidly, but the rate of increase edged down to the softest since January. Meanwhile, employment climbed for the fifth consecutive month, with the speed of job creation being the strongest in three months. On inflation, input prices rose solidly due to elevated staffing costs and higher prices for raw materials. Meanwhile, output costs increased only slightly amid the strong competition. And finally, business sentiment improved for the first time in five months amid hopes of stronger economic conditions and greater amounts of new work to support growth. And Michelle, do you want to kick off there? There's quite a lot of information, isn't there, in the, in the, in the PMI and the services sector. What, what did you glean from it about the economy on the mainland? So I think a decline in the services PMI is expected and consistent with what we saw in the official data released earlier. And it's, it's just reasonable to expect some strong momentum given that um, the reopening momentum has, the, we've got a, already quite a strong recovery in the first quarter. So there's uh, less juice left for the services to uh, climb further and back to the pre-COVID levels. Um, and I think what is uh, slightly worrying is that if you look at um, the tourism spending data for the Dragon Ball Festival, it seems that it's uh, deteriorated a bit compared to what we saw in May. So tourism spending actually fell to below the 2019 levels, which to me suggests that um, maybe the people are still keen to travel, but the willingness to spend uh, seems to be uh, still a bit softer than what I would expect. Andrew, what are your thoughts? My thought is, is uh, I, uh, I prefer to take all both the official and the unofficial uh, PMI indexes together. Uh, first looking at the, the manufacturing and then looking at the service sector, particularly in the Kaixin. And uh, there is one thing. You know, if I put the charts up, I put them about uh, six feet away from my eyes, <laughs> I squint and I look at them, I will say they're going precisely nowhere. <clears throat> the fact that uh, six months 
of uh, over 50 is there, it is literally all over the place. It goes up, it goes down, it goes suddenly significantly up, and then it goes suddenly significantly down. For me, if it shows you anything, it shows complete, I wouldn't say inability. People, remember, the, the, the FBI index is asking the percent, it's calculating the percentage of people thinking that it's going to be better, and the percentage of people saying that it's going to be not be better. Okay, if more than 50% say it's going to be better, then the index over 50. Mm-hmm. Very simple as that. Of mm-hmm. course, we want it as, as, as much over 50 as possible. So the answer is, is I look at these figures, something which is deeply worrying, and that is uh, in terms of expectation, we are having uh, a quagmire. We are, we are stuck in the mud. We are not going anywhere fast. Is um, I've heard um, the Chinese economy being described as being in a balance sheet recession. In other words, people don't want to spend, they want to pay down debts. That's true of both businesses and companies. And as a result, um, that's slowing the economy. Is that true? Is that the right term to describe where the Chinese economy is? You know, I prefer, I prefer to say that uh, the consumption sector, uh, before I start brackets, uh, export, net export growth is not a driver of the Chinese economy. So leave that aside, please. Okay, mm. it adds very little. Let's concentrate on investment and consumption. Uh, the consumers and the invest and the producers are still uh, punch drunk from three years of incredible experience. And also, don't forget the recovery came completely unexpectedly. Okay, in December suddenly everything was. Was, was lifted with no explanation, okay, and apparently we are back to the races. No, we're not. Okay, and uh, one of the important things for me that has been left completely unobserved is it, it involves the symptoms of the long COVID. Anybody that has got COVID, okay, the 80% of the people that had COVID continue to suffer from symptoms of COVID that are really debilitating, but they don't kill them. You know, in, in China, literally hundreds of millions of people carry on every day working, not feeling well. There is no way I could quantify that. Neither there is any way I could prove that this explains why the economy is so subdued and why consumers are unwilling to make big expenditure moves. Okay, but, you know, if I wanted to blame something, I would be delighted to blame the long COVID. And I'm working very hard to find a quantitative relationship between the two. I started with China because China was a classical example where there was an abrupt change, okay, and then uh, effectively not a great deal happened. Mm. Michelle, Hong Kong is exactly the same, but it's a smaller case. Okay. Michelle, what, what do you think about that? Do you think um, China, this is long COVID, that, you know, people, workers are still suffering from, the, from, uh, from COVID a couple of years ago, and maybe that's having an impact on, uh, on, their, on their work and on their ability to, to get out and, and go and enjoy life and spend a bit more? I think that's, uh, that is certainly the case for some of the service sector firms that have suffered from big revenue over the last couple of years. And um, they still they are still very cautious about expanding the, the business and hiring people. And I think that's also um, the, the result that's what you see in the, uh, in the um, 
the labor market, for example, the young people, a lot of them actually uh, would normally be employed in the uh, retail, catering, accommodation sectors. But these sectors, I think they're just um, still adjusting. Um, they're still recovering from the uh, low COVID, the, the COVID scaring impact. So I think to some extent it's true. Um, but I think when, when it comes to the question of whether China is in a balance sheet recession, I think it's it's, it's it, I think it's more of a risk. Um, right now, I think if you look at the, the household balance sheets, I think if you look at the, the debt ratio, actually the debt to GDP has been stabilizing at 60% of GDP mm. um, since 2022. So... I think there are stories that some households, they're probably trying to repay the mortgage that um, because uh, the house prices are not going to expect, not, are not going up any further. Um, so some, some, some of the households, I think, are, are doing that. But I think as the household sector overall, I think there is a risk of a balance sheet recession. But I think right now, um, I think we, we're still not there yet. So I think a lot of things would depend whether the house prices uh, would continue to decline. And if that's the case, I think the risk is going higher. It would explain about um, some of the construction firms, for example. I mean, under the, like, the, the free line, the free red line campaigns that started in 2020, then certainly these real estate firms are in a balance sheet recession because the leverage ratio uh, was too high to start with. Uh, Michelle raised very interestingly, of course, the issue of property. And uh, looking at the index of uh, new homes in uh, the 70 biggest cities in China, I take a deep breath. For 14 months in sequence, the index year on year is negative. In other words, these guys and girls coming up for a year and a half have been seeing the prices of their newly purchased homes going down. Okay, that cannot, long COVID or not, that cannot possibly have a good impact on expectations mm. count this up with getting up every morning and feeling dreadful feeling weak feeling tired uh, feeling with pains all over the all, all over your body and these are all medically uh, counted symptoms it's not my imagination okay and also having the price of your house going down continuously every month yeah exactly it's not uh, conducive okay to to a happy lot Mm. And that includes also Hong Kong. I have to extend this now, of course, to either major big economies. It's no good simply picking up China as as a as a as a chick, as a kind of piñata, which is easy to pick. By no means, okay. Neither I have anything against uh, except optimism for China getting better. But that's a situation. So, Andrew, what you describe here, it's a combination of the effects of long COVID, people just feeling dreadful every morning when they go to work, they're seeing their home prices decline month after month, something that they're just not used to in China. This is a pretty serious situation, isn't it, for, for the economy? How does it get out of that? Because this could go on for a while yet. Uh... There are three things. One is a free admission, okay, that uh, that is going to be the case for a lot of people over a long time period. Secondly, I'm sorry, this is not good news. You know, COVID infections go on. The last number I had for Hong Kong, last number, okay, I was, it is nearly about three months old now, it was 10,000 cases in a month. That's an enormous amount for Hong Kong. You know, COVID is not away. Mm. And in China, I have such obscenely big numbers, but I don't want to repeat them because there is no way I can actually prove them. But the WHO, the World Health Organization, 
clearly, continuously clears its throat and says, yes, it's not a pandemic, but it is still infecting a lot of people. And, of course, the bigger the size of the, of, of the country, okay, proportionally, 10% in China is, uh, is about 100 million people. <laughs> That's a lot of infections. Mm. And so, Michelle, what, what is the policy prescription here to, to try and get the economy uh, back moving again um, to offset, you know, what we're seeing in uh, what Andrew describes as long COVID, the declines in the property sector. People are waiting for stimulus or investors seem to be certainly waiting for stimulus. But, but what is the right policy response, do you think? So I think it will be a mixture of different things. Um, for me, um, I think getting the property sector to stabilize is most important because, well, in the first quarter, we actually had some decent rebound in the, in the property sales, but it seems that the property sales have already lost momentum in the, in the recent months. Um, and we all know that the property sector, it's uh, 70% of China's uh, total household wealth. So it is very important that we have prices to stabilize. Mm. Um, but the tricky situation here is that um, the, the, the policymaker seems to be quite cautious about um, not stimulate not to stimulate another bubble. And um, and actually, in the, in the low-tier cities, a lot of the policies have been relaxed. So I think, very likely, I think the policymakers will roll out uh, further interest rate cuts, further lowering the down payment ratios to stimulate the demand further. Um, but apart from that, I think it's also important for the policymakers to try to revive confidence, especially for the households. And I think what they can do is for example, to roll out consumption coupons to provide um, direct income support to the low-income households. Um, these are the things that I think it could be could be rolled out to to support confidence if they do not want to roll out too aggressive aggressive measures to stabilize the property sector. Mm. Couldn't agree with Michelle. Couldn't agree with Michelle more. Look, inflation in China is less than one percent. Okay, it varies between zero and one percent. There is no, they they cannot cut interest rates by fifty basis points, by sixty basis points, then by one and a half basis points. It's completely pointless. Okay, it it doesn't make any sense. So monetary policy in China is actually caught by the fact that they are blessed. <laughs> sounds peculiar. They are blessed by incredibly low inflation. They don't have an inflation problem, but they they do have absence of aggregate demand. And you cannot address that by cutting interest rates against zero. In other words, interest rates can be cut when inflation is relatively high so that real interest rates are falling. Uh, this is this is a, a rather pointless exercise in China. Okay. Hence fiscal policy. And I love coupons. Michelle, I love coupons. I adore coupons. <laughs> they are not necessarily the best the best thing, but it is done. It is quickly. You remember the film? Show me the money. Put the money on the table now. I'm not going to wait for one year before I pay a lower income tax. Okay. <laughs> Michelle, what do you think about that then? Coupons? Uh, yes. Um, well, these things have been done in, in, in Hong Kong, in Macau, in Taiwan, and I just don't see the reason why policymakers uh, cannot do it. And I think it is a more ideal measure uh, rather than uh, rolling another, um, well, you know, in 2016, the policymakers actually roll out the Shantytown redevelopment scheme uh, to try to uh, basically provide money to, for people to buy the houses to support the housing market. I just don't see that they are going to do this again. But if they want to revive confidence uh, by not stimulating the housing sector, I think the consumption coupons will be the more ideal way. 
Okay. Andrew, let me ask you about a couple of these geopolitical issues and what their impacts are going to be. First of all, the the, the trade um, ban supply chain problems seem to be escalating. China's retaliating to the US by banning... Um, or banning without a license anyway the export of two elements which are crucial uh, to semiconductors gallium and germanium china um, produces more than 95 95% of the global gallium output and 67% of germanium production what's the impact of this going to be uh, alternative sources of supply <clears throat> one uh, massive expenditures on uh, on research so that uh, you don't necessarily use uh, rare earths, okay, in the production of, uh, of batteries, and the realization, the wake-up call that economic warfare has always been with us, will always be with us, and there is absolutely nothing new in what's happening between the United States and China right now. Okay, there used to be the same things. You know, people have got incredibly short memories, possibly because they're very young, and therefore their memories are by necessity short. Okay, the continuous fighting between the United States and Japan back in the 70s. I mean, they, they, they just did anything. The time when Japan finally bought Sony and bought Rockefeller uh, Center, nearly, nearly the United States went to war with them. In other words, it, it, is, it, it, is a real, it is a real issue, and I'm afraid it leaves me completely unplushed. Okay, yeah, that's the way it is. The United States will stop sending microchips to China because this can be in- integrated into into defense stroke offense uh, uses. Yeah, and the United States is not going to arm its opponent in inverted commas. And China, of course, will say, you don't give us the chips, now you won't be able to produce any chips at all, never mind giving them to us. Okay. Mm-hmm. Slightly childish, but effective. Michelle, what do you think is the impact, uh, the, the economic impact of, of this? Clearly, it's going to drive up prices, isn't it? Which presumably will then make it more interesting for other countries to step into the fray and start producing these elements themselves. Yeah, I think it seems that uh, with this export control, Japan, Germany and Netherlands are the three economies that are most affected because they are the three largest importers of gallium. Um, so I think it's interesting to see that actually the, before the Japan and Netherlands are actually under pressure of the U.S. government to place limits on the exports of the cheap manufacturing equipment. And now that it seems that they are trying to comply with the U.S. policy, so China is uh, trying to fight back. And I think it's just... Yeah, I agree with Andrew that it is uh, the, the 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 warfare between the U.S. and China is just uh, I think it's just here to stay. It's not going to reverse uh, anytime soon, and uh, it is possible that the situation could uh, get worse with the U.S. election coming uh, next year because we all know that um, the the anti-China uh, sentiment seems to be uh, quite widespread among um, the voters in the U.S. So it's, it's just that some uncertainty, uh, the shock that I think the financial markets need to live with. And, uh, and that's also, the, I think, the slightly inflationary. Okay, Andrew, you mentioned earlier Hong Kong, so let me ask it more thoughts from you about Hong Kong. We had the PMI, it remained in expansion in June, but the weakest expansion uh, in the last six months, the, uh, the Hong Kong PMI declined to 50.3. That's just above the level that separates expansion uh, from contraction. We also had retail sales data uh, this week. Retail sales rose 18.4% from a year earlier. That compares with 14.9% in April and almost 41% growth in March. Uh, where is the Hong Kong economy in the bigger picture? 
Well, let me let me wear very quickly my my academic hat. You know, I was I was a professor of economics for 22 years, and uh, if I had them in front of me for 101 economics, they are not going to pass. Look, May okay went up 18.4 percent. You know what? May a year before it shrank by 1.6 percent. In other words, we have a low base effect. Can you please, 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 please say that when you give these big fat numbers? Also, you heard it here for the first time. June, July, August and September 22 were all negative to zero. So in other words, I give you a guarantee that the sales numbers for June, July, August and September in Hong Kong are going to be nice, fat, big and strong on the basis of very low basis. There but, you go. but what is where is the Hong Kong economy, though? Obviously, you know, you've, you've got this base effect, but where do you think the economy is um, now at the moment? Uh, there are there are two issues here. Uh, first, in the case of Hong Kong, it is absolutely impossible to work out meaningfully what exports are doing to GDP because Hong Kong doesn't export anything. 95% of all our exports are re-exports. And uh, there are figures in which can tell you something about the value added of re-exports. Re, re but uh, uh, my very back of an evermore calculation is, is uh, don't take a deep breath and wait on those. Uh, consumption and uh, investment. Now, investment in Hong Kong, of course, is primarily on the property side, and consumption is driven partially, but not fully, by tourism. And tourism, right now, it is not anywhere even near what it was, okay, before COVID. We had uh, very good numbers for April, which gave us an annualized uh, value of uh, tourist uh, uh, visits of about 20, 20 to 25 million at its peak, at its mm. best years, back in uh, 16, 17, 18, there were nearly 60 million of tourists. Okay, we're not anywhere near the So all these are impacting. More tourists, please. Yeah, but they are coming from China and they are not coming to Hong Kong. They are visiting China. I was looking at the tourist spending in China during the last six months. And there's been a very significant uh, increase to domestic tourism, which makes a lot of sense. People don't want to spend their money. So in the case of Hong Kong, not a great deal can be done. I'm sorry, we're going, again, we're a little bit stuck in mud because, of course, the, the big engine next door to us is likewise. We, we can't blame everybody else for that. And Hong Kong is not 100% dependent on China. But if it is 80% dependent on China, that's enough. Mm. Okay. Michelle, what are your thoughts about the Hong Kong economy? Um, I I'm more concerned about the the, the structural side of uh, of Hong Kong because we well we just talk about uh, how the US China are going to uh, have a have a have a long term conflict and that's certainly not helpful for the for the position of Hong Kong as a financial center or the connector with the China and the rest of the world in the in the financing front. Um, I know the Chinese the Hong Kong government have been trying to do a lot of uh, initiatives to try to promote uh, to, to be a connector between the Middle East and, and China, but I think that remains to be seen whether it will give any success. And also to me, it's that in Hong Kong, it's just uh, the, the, the major advantage uh, is, is, the, is the financial sector. And um, and if you look at the news in mainland China recently, they have actually uh, well, first of all, not to mention that um, now a lot of uh, the the banks are trying to find people because the IPO market is just dead and the stock 
market trading volume is also not very um, not not, uh, not not have not reached the ideal levels because uh, of the weak uh, market sentiments and that's one and um, and second I think um, under the common prosperity drive in China um, you've seen news about uh, the salary cuts in some of the uh, the, the state-owned firms, the, the security firms. So I think it's just uh, under this uh, long-term policy from the Chinese policymakers that they they're trying to encourage more uh, more financial resources and talent to flow into the tech sector rather than the financial sector. I think that's also that will also undermine uh, the the Hong Kong's position. Like if the importance of financial sector is less important compared to tech. Um, then I wonder uh, how how much uh, upside that's going to be for the for the Hong Kong uh, on a structural basis. Okay. Finally, I want to get a quick comment from you both on the Fed minutes. If you look at the minutes, it looks like Fed officials have done a deal amongst themselves. They'll pause in June, but they're going to raise rates again um, in July. Andrew, I'm still baffled by what it is. Um, that the Fed was waiting to see during this very brief pause. They say they want to assess uh, the impact of the last uh, sort of 10 rate hikes on the economy. Is, first of all, one month enough time to do that? And have they learnt anything about the impact of those last 10 rate uh, rate hikes during this pause? Uh, not really, okay? except we're having one uh, nice sign, and that is inflation is now 4% and interest rates are 5%. So for a change, we are having real increases in interest rates and not negative, sorry, in real levels as opposed to negative. And uh, that's encouraging. But that is, uh, that is very, very metaphysical. In other words, people don't go around saying, oh, good grief, real interest rates are falling, let me spend more. It doesn't work like that. It works in a very sub- subterfugal uh, way. What the Fed was expecting, I have no idea, I must admit, and the obsession of sticking with uh, job creation numbers, job creation numbers in the past had a terrible uh, reputation of really catching you very, very unaware. In other words, there were, there were very big increases or decreases that uh, were unexplainable at the time. That's why I look at the unemployment and look at the job figures and I would say, well, uh, they prefer not to make mistakes again by not increasing. All right. I'm not saying not making mistakes again by cutting, by not increasing and uh, thereby keeping their powder dry. Uh, answer is, is uh, they are waiting for God. Okay, but uh, any any an economics God. I'm being I'm being a little bit uh, <laughs> who isn't going to arrive. They're, they're being of course. careful. They're being careful. Yeah. Okay, um, Michelle. It looks like we, we've got to prepare for more rate hikes, though, doesn't it? Certainly, another two, uh, quite possibly, according from the according to the minutes. Um, yes, I, I agree. Um, yeah, it's quite likely that in the July we will have another 25 basis point rate high. But of course, we also need to see what's going to happen um, with the payroll numbers that will be coming soon. Um, our expectation is that it will probably remain quite strong. Um, so in line with the trend that what we've seen uh, so far. Um, so. Yeah, I think we just we just need to prepare for um, upside surprise. But I think the the good news is that on the inflation front, um, of course the the, P, the PCE data suggested that inflation momentum seems to be coming down. Um, and also, also I think if you look at um, the wage growth uh, in the U.S. economy, there are also signs of uh, softening. It has not fallen to the level that that would be consistent with inflation at 2%, but there are some signs of softening and the job openings are, are also falling. So if that uh, uh, the overheating of the labor market uh, could be easing without putting a lot of pressure on the, on the consumption and the overall economy, then I think 
that would be good news for uh, for a soft landing. Okay, well, thank you both very much. You heard there Michelle Lam, who is Greater China Economist at Societe Generale Corporate and Investment Banking, and Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory. I'm joined now by Francis Chung, who is the executive chairman of MPF Ratings. Morning, Francis. Good morning. Um, we've talked a lot uh, over the last few days about the first half performance in the markets. Big, big outperformance in the US with the Nasdaq uh, up around 30%. Not bad performance either in some Asian markets, particularly Japan um, and India, but terrible performance um, in the Chinese markets. Has that been reflected in the MPF performance over the first half of the year? Yeah, it has. I mean, it's it, it's been interesting because on the face of it, I think sort of MPF outcomes in the first six months have been... Um, have been reasonable. Uh, just over $60 billion Hong Kong dollars has been added to MPF assets. Uh, but in a recent press release we put out, we did ask the question, could it have been more? And it certainly could have been because the dispersion between US equities and Hong Kong China equities within MPF, I think in the first six, first six months of 2023 was about 20.5%. So it's quite a wide dispersion. And mm. Whilst that's significant, the other point that that needs to be borne out is that uh, Hong Kong China equities is MPF's biggest asset class. So essentially, if Hong Kong China equities as an asset class does well, MPF members do extremely well. But still, 16.5 billion Hong Kong dollars in total um, uh, gain is, is not too bad. Mm. And what was the average performance for MPF funds over the first half of the year? Um, average MPF gains were just over 3%. So if you break it down, half of the uh, $60.5 billion that um, went into MPF was contributions and the other half were um, investment gains. And, but what about if you look at, say, US markets and then China and Hong Kong-based uh, MPFs? I imagine big difference there. Big difference. Um, as I said, I mean, I think... Uh, U.S. equity funds on the average were up about 16%, and uh, for the year, Hong Kong-China equity funds were down four and a half, just over 4.5%. Uh, and I presume this is because of the home bias. Obviously, this is a Hong Kong scheme, so people tend to invest in the local markets. Yeah, I mean, look, there is a home bias, but I, I think it would be remiss of me to, to not say that... Um, the MPFA mandated DIS schemes, which are the the uh, the default schemes that um, members go into should they not choose, they have less of a bias towards Hong Kong China equities and actually a higher relative allocation to um, uh, to US equities for one. And as a result, on a diversified basis, those DIS funds, the core accumulation fund in particular, um, uh, did very well. And as a category, was the best performing diversified fund category uh, this year. So explain for maybe those listeners who aren't clear about what the default fund is, what this DIS fund yeah. is, explain how that works. Yeah, <laughs> or, or how it doesn't work. Uh, and I say that tongue in cheek insofar as if if MPF members or, or active Hong Kong workers who have an MPF account don't have the ability to choose a, a fund based on their personal needs. They mm. will default automatically into the MPF scheme of their employers choosing um, into their default scheme. Right. And those default schemes have very, very prescribed um, um, investment guidelines. Um, they're well diversified. Um, as I said, they have a higher relative exposure to developed equities than Hong Kong China equities. 
But not only that, um, not only those guidelines are sort of well-defined, but the fees are, are, are capped and, um, and they're capped at 1% total expense. So you do actually get extremely good value for money out of those DIS funds. And it, it also highlights, I suppose, a very good investment principle overall, which is the importance of diversification, because this is a diversified fund, isn't it? And then you find that you don't suffer so much if you happen to be in the wrong market or, or the wrong sector. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's probably the core, or that is the core message of MPF ratings when we when we provide research views and education to the marketplace, is that, look, at the end of the day, MPF is for your retirement. It's mm. a long-term investment. Mm. Trying to pick and choose markets um, is extremely difficult. I mean, even in the US, I mean, year-to-date, um, yeah, a lot of it's been driven by the NASDAQ, so um, you've got to make that active decision. But if you're unable to make that active decision, time is your best friend and diversification. It takes away that, um, that angst of trying to pick the right market. And also people tend to get it wrong, don't they? They tend to panic when the market has gone down. And like maybe they're seeing in Hong Kong and China and say, oh, I really ought to get out. And then also likewise, they buy into the markets that have had a huge run, sometimes near the top. No, that's exactly right. I mean, the, 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 there, there is that, that aspect where, um, where market timing is just done wrong because there's an emotional aspect to investing. And in fact, you know, each quarter we undertake um, fund flow analysis within MPF. And mm-hmm. consistently what we see is that there is this sort of lagged relationship between market returns and, and fund, outflow, uh, fund trends um, where members end up trying to chase markets. And clearly that's not a great way to invest for the long term. And then people, I suppose, should also realise that you've got many years normally until your retirement. You know, a lot of people who are listening are starting out young, saving when they're young. Even if you've got it wrong this year or you're, the market you happen to be in didn't work out, there are many years, aren't there, for this to work out uh, going forward. So I, people shouldn't panic. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think the average employment um, or years to retirement for a Hong Kong worker is just over 20 years. So I mean, think about it. It's a twenty-year long, yeah. You know, it's a twenty-year investment. So uh, diversification, um, investing for growth, but being diversified um, is an important aspect. And again, I I would say that um, that you know, with the DIS funds, um, there are two aspects. There's the core accumulation fund, and there's the age sixty-five. So, and uh, as you get um, over 50 years old, it slowly allocates more to the more conservative as you approach investing. So not only do you have to not worry about the diversification aspect, but actually the de-risking as you you get closer to retirement um, um, is also taken care for you. But it's a good point that, look, it is a long-term investment, uh, not only because it is about investing, but by virtue of the fact that you have on average 20, 25 years before you retire as a, as a Hong Kong worker, it makes sense to, to focus on the long term. So this, this DIS core accumulation fund, in terms of performance, it's never going to be the best performer, is it? But it's also, it's never going to be the worst either. No, no, no. And I, again, I think in my most recent press release, I sort of made that point. Um, and, uh, and, 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 you know, as, as much as, you know, there's always sort of that pressure on us uh, when we're asked as, as so-called independent experts, well, where would you put your money? 
I mean, it's a very difficult decision to make, and that's why diversification is important. And it's not about picking the best market. It's quite often about avoiding the worst performing asset classes. So it's a, it's all about investing for the long term and being consistently invested. And also, as you just say, actually being invested. The worst thing you can do is not be being invested, out of the, being correct. out of the market because you try and time it and you think, oh, there's a better opportunity coming up. And then, you know, it's often the case that, you know, the performance in a year happens on maybe just 10 trading days a year, most of that performance. You happen to miss it. Um, you're, you're wrong to be out of the market. Absolutely. Does every MPF scheme have to have one of these DIS funds? Yeah, it's mandated by the MPFA um, that every scheme must have um, um, an, an offering and the fees must be capped at total expense of less than 1%. Okay, so really people who are listening, they should look at these funds and, and at least consider them as part of the, you know, their investment sort of profile maybe. Yeah, I mean, look, personally speaking, I know that um, I have an allocation to, um, to DIS within my MPF exposure. Uh, and but that was a that was a conscious decision, notwithstanding mm. that um, it was initially designed for members who felt they were unable to make a decision that their monies would default automatically. You can make a proactive decision to have DIS as your MPF fund. Mm. Okay. Now, what about going forward? Obviously, this is the first six months of the year, very stark, as you say, dispersion between the different markets. It looks like, from what we've just seen today anyway, and from the Fed minutes, interest rates are going to carry on going up, at least another two interest rate um, rises. This is going to have a substantial impact on Hong Kong, probably. Yeah, look, I, I, I think, you know, what we've seen over the past year or two, it's highly unlikely that that environment is going to change. I think at the end of the day, central governments around the world are still focused on fighting inflation manage, and managing growth. And, um, and uh, you know, the, the, if that means that interest rates either remain at these elevated levels or continue to rise for some time, I think that's, that's kind of the expectation that MPF members should have. But again, I think the the point to emphasize here is that from an MPF member perspective, you could almost suggest that this is noise in the market mm. because it's what's happening today. But as you had mentioned earlier, MPF is a long-term investment. It's mm. for your working life and beyond. So whilst it may be an issue today, it's not necessarily going to be an issue that one is going to be looking at in a decade or two decades out. And it goes back to what we had talked about earlier, which is time in market, being well diversified, and just ensuring that the funds that you're invested in actually are going to meet your long-term needs, either you know, in the pre-retirement um, environment or, more importantly, in your post-retirement environment. Mm. Are, are any changes envisaged for the MPF scheme going forward? Uh, now, that's a very good question. So... You know, there has been talk about um, um, either raising contributions or raising uh, the the MPF cap, um, and I suspect that that something will happen to, to to ensure that more money goes into MPF. Because at the end of the day, you know, you've got to make sure that um, average account balances are substantial enough for. Uh, yeah, for it to provide a meaningful retirement income for for um, for MPF members, so 
I suspect that something will happen there, and it mm. should. And I think that would be a, a positive message to um, um, to, uh, to the market. Um, the there are probably two other things that are very interesting in the market at the moment within the MPF system. One is sort of the focus now on value for money. Mm. Uh, you know, historically the MPFA has always sort of justified the performance of the system based on real rates of return. Um, that language we've seen has pivoted to what we have always described MPF as, which is, is it delivering value for money to members? Right. right. Um, so I think that's the second aspect. There's going to be a greater focus on delivering value um, to MPF members. So that means just a better member experience from MPF schemes. And then I think the third thing that, that you will see, and we have seen it recently, and when I say recently, just in the past month, we've seen Manulife and Sun Life um, launch um, ESG-focused funds within their um, scheme offerings. And I think you will see um, between now and the end of the year and, and certainly into 2024, um, greater emphasis on sustainable investing and the results of that conversation will see sort of new fund launches and that sort of broadens out the product offering um, and arguably sort of improves the member experience because it gives them sort of choice if that's something that, that they're interested in, sustainable investing um, um, as a possible um, option to, um, to, to choose. The, the reality is, though, isn't it? We probably don't save enough. Most people don't save enough for their retirement. But of course, you don't have to just have the MPF scheme. You could look, you know, put money uh, into other sort of funds as well. Have your own, uh, have your own investments. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, look, you, you know, there's always going to be a question based on current contribution rates whether MPF is going to be enough to sustain uh, one's um, retirement outcome. But I think as it stands now, one should see MPF as just being a component of one's retirement asset. Mm. Um, and look, I, I know from my first-hand experience with my very own children, you know, they're 25, 22, and 18, and the two older ones use um, the MPF platform's special voluntary contribution um, um, uh, option to, to provide regular savings. You know, there, there are no fees in, there's no fees out, um, there's a regular savings that's in, and the only fee they pay is the fund expense ratio of the funds that they invest into. Similarly, you know, for workers who who feel they're paying too much in tax, you know, take advantage of the of the special voluntary uh, of, of the tax voluntary contribution um, opportunity. You get tax, you know, you get a tax benefit up to sixty thousand Hong Kong dollars um, of contribution, and um, so you're basically being paid uh, to save. So there are options out there. That's a good thing to know. Thank you very much, Francis. It's Thank always you very a pleasure uh, talking to you. That's Francis Chung, who is Executive Chairman of MPF Ratings. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On tomorrow's programme, I'm joined by Francis Lun, the CEO of Geo Securities, and Shah, Asia Chief Economist at BBVA. And with a view from Australia, is Toby Lawson, the CEO of Staten Partners. Bye for now. Money Talk 